I am uh, excited for us, church, as we move into uh, this season that God has uh, for us. And uh, part of that is as we began to think and pray a number of months ago about uh, our teaching series as we came into the fall, uh, we thought a lot about the fact that some of these things are going to stretch us. Some of the things that God's putting in front of us are going to create a sense of um, really making us feel at times uncomfortable. And so we're uh, in the month of September going through a teaching series here entitled Uncomfortable. And as we, as we do that, I want you to just think for a moment, close your eyes and just picture in your head the uh, picture that you have of your perfect church, every part of the perfect church. Like what for you is the perfect church, your dream church? It has just everything you think that the perfect church needs to have. What kind of architecture does the dream church have in your mind? What kind of worship style does it have? What songs do they sing? What are the membership requirements of your dream church? What does the community life together feel like? See, all of us probably have in our minds a picture of what the church should be, what we think if we got to call all of the shots, design everything about it, it should be. Uh, we had the privilege this past month to, to spend some time uh, with Meg's family in Europe. And of course, what do pastors do on their holidays? They visit churches, other churches. And so we had the privilege of visiting some of the most iconic churches in uh, the UK and in France. So let me show you a few and just see if they maybe match up a little bit to some of the pictures that you have in your mind. All right, so here's the first one. Uh, this one sits picturesquely placed above uh, and atop the white cliffs of Dover in England. It's called the Church of St. Mary in Castro. It was built around the year 1000. Uh, just beautiful architecture, beautiful setting, uh, and it uh, particularly focused on caring for wounded soldiers during World War I and World War II. So think about that for a moment, the type of tight-knit community that would form when your primary ministry as a church community is to people who are wounded, who are sick, who are dying, who are on the front lines as warplanes drone over your head and you gather in this kind of a place to sing a hymn or uh, to bury a friend or a colleague. Like the community dynamic would be so rich and vibrant. Uh, the next church that we visited is Canterbury Cathedral. Canterbury, of course, is the seat of the worldwide Anglican communion. So if your church is more on the high church end of things in your mind, when you close your mind and picture the dream church, worship style, architecture-wise, this one might be for you. So uh, at Canterbury, we had the privilege of attending a Holy Communion service uh, right down in the crypt. And it was moving, very moving to think about the fact that for 1,400 years... In this place, Christians had gathered and spoken the exact same words, the liturgy largely unchanged for 1,400 years, just with the beauty and the depth of uh, Canterbury in that cathedral. 
Uh, the next one uh, that you might recognize is Notre Dame. Notre Dame de Paris, absolutely stunning architecture and uh, done again with stained glass windows, telling the stories of the church, the history of the church, and the saints that have gone before us. And then, of course, gargoyles that make for really good Disney movies and vaulted ceilings. And, like, if you want a church that, gets a lot, that draws a crowd, Notre Dame is your place because thousands and thousands of people line up every day to go through and worship in Notre Dame. Uh, another one that we visited, the last one I'll show you, is uh, Sacre-Cœur, or Sacred Heart. And it's up at the top of the hill in Paris. And so you got to go way up. You look down back over the city, and uh, you're really not supposed to take pictures inside of Sacre-Cœur, but I snapped a few. I, I got kind of one of the baptismal font, uh, and another one as people were sitting down and praying, and there's this beautiful ray of light streaming down from the domed ceiling, and just this really kind of quiet and worshipful and beautiful kind of moment in there. But they also do not make it easy to worship at Sacre-Cœur. You have to climb up almost 300 steps to get in the front door of the church. There's no parking. There's no children's ministry. Like, there's none of those accoutrements that we, if you want to go to church, that's fine. You better climb up those 300 steps and get in there before the tourists go crazy. So I don't know what's on your list. I don't know what you have in your mind when you close your eyes and picture the dream church. It might have a certain style of music might have a particular bent theologically speaking. But the challenge comes when we begin to kind of dwell there and really fantasize about our particular concept and our model of the dream church. We are actually creating in that moment in our minds a mental model of that drives our realities and our thinking and our experience. And it's a bit of a reinforcing loop then, that mental model, because then we come across things in the real world, and we say things like, huh, I don't really like that, that song, that style, that architecture. And then we feed additional data into our mental model, and we try and figure out why we don't like that, or what are the things that don't quite match up in our mind. And then usually with a mental model, the next place we go is to romanticize things and think about other places in really glowing terms. Like, if only I worshipped there at that church, none of the things that bother me about this place would really bother me there. And we romanticize it in all kinds of ways. We can romanticize when we read through the scriptures and look at the book of Acts and the early church and we can think, oh, if my church only was like the early church, you know, I mean, that level of community with a common purse they had and caring for people in that way, and there were healings and the miraculous happening all over the place, and then our mental model becomes a return to sort of thinking, well, why doesn't that happen in my church? 
And it becomes uh, sometimes easy for us to gloss over some of the things in the first century church that were really challenging and, and troubling in our desire to kind of import those things into our experience in the 21st century. And then the other thing that happens, and it's a dangerous thing, is we begin to compare our mental model with the real world experience of church. And we think to ourselves, well, Jericho doesn't really resemble the things in my mind that I think the church should be or could be. This church probably doesn't resemble your dream church. And when you start to explore that, it creates tension for us because our expectations go unmet. It's like a rubber band then that gets stretched and stretched and stretched. Um, Throughout the summer, as elders who've been reading a great book, I say a great book, all of the feedback from all of us as elders is like, it's a really hard book, it's a heavy book, it's a dense book, it's a leadership book uh, called The Fifth Discipline by Peter Senge. And he talks about this model of an elastic band. He says an elastic band can, can be really good. It can stretch you in a helpful and healthy way. It can pull you forward to where you want to go. But if you stretch it too far and you snap it, it can be really painful. And so you have to be aware of and manage how much tension you put into your life. It can create positive change for you and help your community move towards a fresh and exciting vision for the future, or it can be hurtful. And here's the other part of the dream church experiment that's really a little bit problematic for us. And that is, we're all great North Americans, and as really wonderful North Americans, we have inherited something inherent in the water in North America, and that is a market mindset. And what I mean by this is we are culturally conditioned to avoid things that are uncomfortable, and we are culturally conditioned to choose things that are nice, comfortable, and helpful for us. So when we think about, you know, being uncomfortable... We tend to avoid things that make us uncomfortable. We don't want the smallest seat in the airplane. We don't buy the car that doesn't handle how we want it. If our kid is in a bad class this year, we rush into the principal to get them out of that uncomfortable situation or maybe pull them from that school altogether because we don't want them to be uncomfortable. And we're culturally conditioned then on top of this to choose things based on personal preference. And I'm reminded of this every time that we travel. Because in England, in the little towns that you go to, where there is one little store where you buy things, whatever is in that store, that's what you get. So if they have, say, a particular type of peanut butter, you don't ask the proprietor, um, do you have smooth or crunchy, or do you have another brand, do you have natural, do you have sugar-free, do you have this, do you have that? Like, Whatever kind is there, that's what you get. As my kids would say, you get what you get and you don't get upset. And I remember coming home one time from East Africa and going into a grocery store and seeing at one part of the grocery store, that part, you know where they have the olives in the grocery store? And they have like not just one type of olives, not two types of olives, but like there's more than a dozen types of olives just sitting there in the grocery store. And I thought to myself, good Lord, people over in Africa are starving. And here in Langley, I have literally dozens of choices of olives. What is wrong with the world? 
And of course, that's culture shock speaking. But you get the point. Like in North America, we are accustomed to having choice. When we don't have choice, we kind of bristle at that. And we think, there should be more options for me here. So back to church world. When there's no choice, you don't really get accustomed to wanting choice. But here in Langley or Surrey, if you think about the choice that exists in church world, we are at this very moment within reasonable driving distance of approximately 534 churches, near as I can count. That's a lot of church choice. And so what can creep into our thinking as good North American consumers is we say to ourselves, you know, if this place isn't really doing it for me, I've got lots of choice out there. I, I should find, if Jericho isn't resembling my dream church on the timetable I want it to, not a problem. There's lots of options. I can find everything I want in a faith community. And so sometimes we check out because we have a market mindset when it comes to the church. So friends, it's time as we go through this series, we're just going to be talking about that notion that choosing to sink in to a particular faith community is really an act of choosing to be uncomfortable. Because the truth is, if you haven't lived through an experience yet of being let down by Jericho Ridge, don't worry, give it time, we will disappoint you. (laughs) I can promise you, uh, I can't promise you many things, but I can promise you that. We're not going to match up to your dream church in every way, shape, or form at all the moments. And that's why we've titled this series Uncomfortable, because we just want to signal clearly there's moments in the life of a community together where it's awkward, where it's uncomfortable, and yet we choose to do it anyway. Why? Well, thankfully, the, the scriptures give us a clear picture and vision for the church, and so we're going to look today in the book of 1 Peter, chapter 2. And in the New Testament, in this text, we're given three word pictures that really help set a clear sense for what the church is supposed to be and look like, not just based on our personal preferences, but really based on God's goals and objectives for his church. So turn with me in your Bibles or on your devices to 1 Peter, chapter 2. The Apostle Peter's writing, uh, he has experienced himself a deep sense of community with uh, Jesus, with the disciples during Jesus' time here on earth. And he's writing now to a group of people who are facing hard times. It's not an easy go in the first century. And they're uncertain about their faith and they're wondering, should it be this hard? And he writes to remind them of the hope they have, not only in Christ, but also the high and holy privilege that they have of doing life together in community. So the first word picture in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, is a picture of human development. I'm going to start reading in the New Living Translation in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, where Peter says, so get rid of all evil behavior. Be done with things like deceit, hypocrisy, jealousy, and all unkind speech. Like newborn babies, you must crave pure spiritual milk so that you can grow into a full experience of salvation. Cry out for this nourishment 
now that you have had a taste of the Lord's kindness. So the first image there is an image of just natural progression in growth and development as a human being, from being a baby towards maturity as an adult. And so this image helps us understand and get our first insight into what the church is supposed to be about. See, it's clear in Peter's mind that the goal, that God has a goal in helping, uh, placing us in community. And God's goal in placing you in community is not your comfort. It's your growth. God's goal of placing you in a church is not for your comfort, but for your growth. You and I are supposed to grow into a deeper and deeper realization and experience of God's kindness and his goodness. And Christian community is one of the primary vehicles to help accomplish that purpose. Which should make us ask the question, how does actually maturity happen? What does that process actually feel and look like? And Peter gives us two insights in this passage. One is that maturity happens as we begin to walk away from things that would prevent and inhibit our growth. So he gives a whole list of things that we need to be attentive to stopping or cutting off or doing away with in our lives. But more importantly, Peter says, spiritual growth actually happens when you pursue it. Crave it, he says in 1 Peter 2, chapter 2. You have to actually want to grow. And you have to want to grow more than you want to stay comfortable. Just like that elastic band, you need to want to be stretched. Well, what does that look like? Well, spiritual maturity is not just something and automatically that if you jump through a certain set of hoops, attend a certain set of classes, check some boxes, become a member, be faithful in attendance, giving, blah, 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 somehow you grow or automatically will mature as an individual in Christian faith. But at the same time, it's likely that you're going to grow if you choose to place yourself into environments where growth is possible. So places like uh, a small group, and we have eight of them. So there's lots of capacity there. Uh, and that's a place where you're getting around and into an environment where other people are saying, I want to grow. And so when you put yourself around other people who want to grow, sometimes that just has a way of rubbing off on you and figuring like, yeah, I want to challenge myself to grow in this area. Or uh, accountability relationships, Uh, I have a friend that I meet with every two weeks, and we go hard at each other's growth and say to each other, what are you doing about this area of your life? Are you growing in that? Are you getting rid of that? How does that look for you? What are the things that you're needing to grow more in? See, if you start to hang around with people who are invested in and care about your growth, and you start showing up in those environments, it's more likely and probable that you will grow. So when you show up on Sunday, so you and your family can get solid teaching and input into your lives. Getting engaged with people who love you enough to speak truth into your lives. And know that as you grow and as you put yourself in those environments, it's really not always comfortable. Because people will begin to see part of 
parts of your life that need to change and be transformed. I love uh, one of my favorite authors is Parker Palmer. He's a Quaker writer, and he has a definition of community. He lived in a communal setting for about 10 years, and after living for a decade in that setting, he came up with Parker Palmer's definition of community. And it's kind of simple, but I think it has a ring of truth to it. He says this, community is that place where the person you least want to live with always lives. And when that person moves away, someone else arises immediately to take his or her place. That's community. Community is being in relationships with other people who are not always comfortable and easy to be in relationship with. And that's part of living together in the life of the church. So here's your first takeaway then from 1 Peter uh, chapter 2. And that is this, simply that God is more committed to your growth than he is to your comfort. God is more interested in seeing you mature and grow and develop than he is in your comfort. But the question really is, Are you committed to your growth? Does your life look like that of a person who wants to grow spiritually? Does your calendar reflect it? Do your friendships reflect it? Do your priorities reflect it? Let's keep reading in 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to see a second word picture that immediately gets introduced. And the second word picture is that of a building project. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. You are coming to Christ, and he is the living cornerstone of God's temple. An Old Testament picture image we'll come to in a minute. Christ was rejected by people, so it wasn't comfortable for Christ, Peter says. But he was chosen by God for great honor. And you are living stones that God is building together into his spiritual temple. Now here, Peter is borrowing an image from the first century world of construction. Because in that day and time, they're using stone, usually, to build and develop and construct dwellings or temples or other things. So when you build with stone, you have to start somewhere. You have to lay your first stone. Those of you who've gone on our teams to Guatemala, you know how this works. You've got to get that anchor point in place, that first kind of stone that you're going to set, and that is a cornerstone. And that's going to establish your plumb line for the rest of the building. Everything else gets built off of that stone. And so Peter picks up on this image, and he says, in the church, God is building something. He's building not necessarily a physical building. He's building a spiritual reality, a spiritual community. And God's actually got ideas about how this community should work and operate and nest together. So we don't just get to build this thing any old way that we decide we want to build it. As the head of his church, there is a stone that has already been laid in place. That is the chief cornerstone. That is Christ Jesus. Christ is the head of his church, and so we have to come to and through him to be a part of spiritual community. I love when you go and see old, old buildings like some of these churches we saw in Europe. They actually have cornerstones, and a lot of them will etch 
that inscription right on them that this is Christ is the chief cornerstone. And you realize real quickly that if you're building with stones, especially in the first century, you don't get this neat, tidy pile of like pre-ordered, neat little rectangular blocks or bricks. You're going to have to shape these new stones to fit into a building. And that's really, again, the idea behind this notion that Peter's saying that there's a cornerstone that's already been laid and set. That means the next stone that gets built into the church has to get nested into and fit around and oriented toward the chief cornerstone, which is Christ already. And that often means chipping away the edges of those other stones so that they can fit well and they're more smooth and more aligned to the size and shape that the cornerstone already has. And so what Peter's trying to tell us here is that as God builds us together into a spiritual community, we got blocks of all shapes and sizes, and so we should expect that there's some rough edges that are going to get shaped off. And so that's the second thing we see here, is that being part of a spiritual community is going to shape and change us. And it's going to happen in often surprising ways. We're going to be pushed and challenged in areas of your life and my life, your ethics, your behavior. It's going to be chiseled away by the work of the Holy Spirit and by the input of others around you. And it's not always comfortable. I was joking uh, with Pastor Wally uh, earlier this summer that we we really should come up with a new tagline for Jericho Ridge. Something to the effect of Jericho Ridge, where everyone is loved, but no one is fully affirmed. And what I mean by that is, like there's parts in every one of our lives that need to be changed, challenged, and pushed back on. We need to submit them in biblical language to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Because we all have elements in our character, in our thinking, that need shaping and submission to the scriptural vision for the kingdom ethics and values and goals and norms that God has in mind. And so being a part of this church, being a part of any church, ought to change you. You ought not to stay the same for extended periods of time because you ought to be growing and being shaped and changed. And this is all because God is actually has a vision for your life and our life together. God is a master builder and he has a project on the go. He's building something. He's building us together as individuals and as a community into a spiritual house where Christ is the chief cornerstone and where we are living stones. In other words, we are related to and connected to Christ. I love the way that Uh, N.T. Wright puts this in his book, God in Public. He reminds us that we are always people under construction. He says this, The church is called to be the community of resurrected selves, persons undergoing reconstruction. And that reconstruction itself only happens within the community of the body of Christ. See, friends, I have areas of my life that need reconstruction, deconstruction and then reconstruction into something that is more like Jesus. I have things that need to be torn down. 
and be rebuilt. And some of these things I can't see clearly in my own life until I allow others around to assist me in that reconstruction project. And that's why we need each other. That's why we need spiritual community. And so here's your second takeaway from 1 Peter chapter 2. If we're being built together, the implication then is that God wants to use other people around you to mature you, and he wants to also use you to help mature others. God wants to use others to mature you, and he wants to use you to mature others. The question is, are you and I willing to persevere through that process? Because it's not quick, it's not easy, and it's actually really messy and uncomfortable. When someone gets to that place in your life where they can say something to you and say, you need to change this. You know, I see things in you that need to develop and need to grow. And some of us give up and bail out on community because people start to do that in our lives. And it gets hard. Some of us bail on community really quick. Somebody says offhandedly something we don't like. Or somebody begins to challenge a particular behavior or belief. And so then a lot of times what happens in North America is we just float off and find somewhere else that already agrees with all of the things uh, that agrees with us has maybe less rigorous standards of community life, um, maybe has different theological lenses. But friends, there's a real blessing if we can persevere and give each other grace and say, you know what, friend? I need you to be patient with me. God has not finished his development work and his construction project in my life. <laughs> and so... This is going to take until eternity and beyond for the perfecting work of the Spirit to continue in my life. And so, just by implication, that means that I need your help maturing. We need each other. And that's not always a comfortable process. But don't give up on each other. Also, don't say stupid and offensive things just to, and that would be uh, unfortunate and, and people would take the wrong way and run away because they thought you meant something different. That's when we need to confront each other in love. But you know, we need each other, and we need to persevere with each other in relationship. So let's keep going in 1 Peter chapter 2 because Peter, again, in just a few short verses, uses yet another image to try and help us understand this. So he's using now an Old Testament image from temple worship. Let's look at verse 5 of chapter 2 and then verse 9. What's more, Peter says, you, those that are being built in God's family, are holy priests. Through the mediation of Christ Jesus, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. You are a chosen people. You are royal priests. You are a holy nation. You are God's very own possession. And as a result of this, you can show others the goodness of God. For God has called you out of the darkness and into his wonderful light. So Peter here uses a Old Testament image that his first readers would be very, very familiar with, but it's a little bit foreign for us to understand. Uh, and his Jewish readers would know and understand from reading the Old Testament the importance and the significance of the priest in ritual worship. 
Because in the Old Testament, only the priests got to do really important religious stuff. They were the ones that ran the temple and got to go in and offer sacrifices to God. They got to go into the special parts of the temple that nobody else could go into. Um, there was all kinds of real strict rules and regulations for them. Uh, and, and the temple was a really big deal, and the way that worship was conducted in it, like lots of the book of, of Leviticus and Deuteronomy and then lots of other parts of the Old Testament are occupied with uh, a lot of real estate taken up about what kind of temple worship should be happening and why it was so important. And then Peter comes along and says, yeah, hey, gang, don't worry about that whole thing that we've been doing for thousands of years with the priests. I've got some radical news for you, and that is every single one of you gets to take up that part in God's family and has the role and the function of a priest. In other words, every single believer, regardless of their gender, their age, their nationality, their maturity, all have equal access and immediate access to God. And friends, that's an amazing thing that doesn't often strike us, but would have rocked the world of these early believers, thinking, what are you telling me? Like the whole temple thing now, like we're all priests? This is crazy talk, Peter. What do you mean? Well, for us, we think about things like, well, it means that I don't have to wait until 3.30 on a Sunday afternoon to go to a location to talk to God or hear from God. I can pray and do that anytime. You don't have to get a pastor or an elder uh, to pray for you. You can ask anyone to pray for you and, and have immediate access to the very presence of God to ask with face, faith and with boldness. And Peter uses the language of offering spiritual sacrifices to God, which is simply to say the priests were there in the Old Testament, in the temple, to offer the grateful response of God's redeemed people. And so Peter says, hey, all of us get the chance now to do that. We are all offering spiritual sacrifices. We are all, if you're a part of God's family, you have have the opportunity to respond with gratitude in a lifestyle of worship. That's why one of our values, core values, is holistic worship. That's what Peter um, is talking about here. Or in Romans chapter 12, when it says, offer yourself to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Worship is not the songs that we sing. It's a pattern of living. It's a posture toward creation, towards other human beings who are made in the image of God, towards our possessions. It touches literally every part of our lives. And when we live this way, Peter says to us, we are fulfilling the role and the function of priests in God's house. And we come then to understand the final thing that Peter says that the church is supposed to be about. And he says this, that God's desire is to use the church to proclaim his goodness to the world. Ultimately, that's what God's project in the Old Testament was about. He wanted to use the pious people and the temple to declare and show to the nations his goodness and his grace. 
And ultimately, God's goal is that all would come to know his grace. Ultimately, God wants the people of Clayton. He wants the people of Willoughby and Port Kells. He wants them to know what he's like. But Peter reminds us and says, you know what? It's up to you and I to then be a part of God's project in that. 1 Peter 2.9, as a result of you offering spiritual sacrifices as a priest in God's house, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness, and he called you into his wonderful light. See, think about it for a minute uh, in the image that we would use of uh, like a display garden or a, a display school or a show home, a display home. You know when a builder's getting ready to develop a whole area or a whole development, getting ready to sell homes, oftentimes what they do first is they put up a show home. And you can go into the show home, and when you walk through it, you can look around and say like, oh, I get it now. That's what this development is supposed to look and feel like. Oh, I understand more, right. That's the feel, the way that the living room relates to the kitchen and stuff like that. So that's why show homes are such a big deal, right? Because they make a great display for people who are wanting to see what that project and what that development might look like. And Peter says exactly that, that you and I and God's church are to be like a show home for the kingdom of God, for kingdom values and life together. We are to show others the goodness of God. We are to show others around us what it means to walk in light instead of darkness. Our lives ought to characteristically come more and more to reflect things that if others look at our lives, they say, oh, those people must follow Jesus because their lives look a little bit like what I see Jesus reflecting in his character and in his heart. Our lives are supposed to look like people who are walking out of darkness, who've been rescued from darkness, and who walk in the light. I mean, if you want a picture of something like this, you should talk to Ken. Ken, wave at the back there. Ken wrote his story out and shared it with me a, a couple of, of weeks ago. And his story, you should talk to him about it sometime. Because Ken's story is just the story of a person radically changed and transformed by God. Freed from all kinds of areas of darkness and addiction and shame. And walking now in the glorious light and saving power of the Holy Spirit. It's incredible. When we actually in humility, say, you know what, I'm going to put my life on display for other people around to see. But here's the cautionary note in all of this, and that is, is that we can actually screw this whole thing up by non-participation in God's project. In Romans 10, it says, you know, people are trying to cry out to God. And uh, the writer of Romans says, like, how can they call on God to save them unless they believe in, in him. And how can they believe about God if they've never heard about God? And how can they hear about God unless somebody tells them? Friends, this is actually what excites me most about the announcement that we made this morning about this new facility. 
It's not about the building. It really is not about the building. A building helps. It's going to be a great tool for us. But it's about the fact that if you go onto that site and you just do a little 360 and you look around and you see all of the apartment buildings and the homes that are there and that are being built all around that and people who are living in them, those are people who need to hear about the love of God. Those are people who need to be drawn into a loving community where they see and experience God's grace and his goodness. They need to see people loving each other well despite vast differences in socioeconomics or race or gender. And they need to see a church that loves that community well. And I am really excited that we as a community have the opportunity to start doing that and seeing and living out the goodness of God and declaring it to those people in, that, in our city and in our neighborhood. Because how are they going to hear about that unless somebody tells them? So friends, here's a challenge I want to leave with you today and this is your takeaway, number three. And that is God wants to use you to show his love to another person. What are you going to do this week to be that representative of kingdom vision and values. Maybe it's just a simple act, befriending a, new, a kid who's new to your school. Maybe it's an act of sacrificial giving. Maybe it's an act of generosity related to your time or your home. Maybe it's a real simple act of just doing the dishes when it is not your turn. But a tangible action taken in love to show another person the love of Christ. What tangible action are you going to do? Because God wants to use you to show his love to another person. And I want to remind you that you cannot give something to another person that you yourself have not received. And so if you're in a place where you're not actively receiving or maybe have never received God's love and his kindness, my closing word to you would be, you maybe have not yet come to experience the incredible joy of being a part of God's family. And yeah, God's family can be really awkward and uncomfortable, and we have a lot of stuff that we need to work on and work out. But friend, it's the most amazing journey you will ever undertake in your life. Because you're coming into relationship, not just with us, we're a motley crew. You're coming into relationship, if you choose that, to a heavenly father who will never leave you, who will never forsake you, who loves you and wants you to be a part of God's family. And so if you've never undertaken that journey, maybe today is your day. The worship team's gonna come and they're gonna lead us in songs about God's heart and God's heart of love for you and for others. Songs about the forgiveness of sins. And if you want to say yes to Jesus today, and say, I want to actually become a part of God's family that our prayer team would love and be privileged to pray with you. They're going to just be at the back, right by the pillars there. If you want to celebrate something that's going on in your life, they'd also be privileged to do that with you. Let's pray together. God, I want to just say thank you for um, your church. I want to say thank you that you are the one that's building and growing it. And uh, you have invited us to be a part of that wonderful project that you are about. 
And so uh, in full humility, God, we say, would you build your church? This is your church. Jericho is your church. And we ask that you would be wonderfully faithful to the promise of your word that says when you build your church, the gates of hell cannot even prevail against it. And so in faith, we ask, God, that you would continue to grow and develop and build us. It's going to be uncomfortable for us. It's going to stretch us. But God, would you grant us the faith and the perseverance necessary to see what it is that you're up to in our lives and in the lives of those around us and to participate as willing and humble servants. And so we say thank you in the wonderful name of Jesus. Our practice here at Jericho when we respond in song is that you're welcome to stand, you're welcome to sit, you're welcome to kneel. Our prayer team uh, has their lanyards on at the back so you know who they are. And we would love you to just take this time to listen to what it is that God is saying to you and to respond in faith.